0: We're finishing up our study in Proverbs 12, and we look at five verses tonight. The four of five verses, the first four of these five, they have a relationship to each other that I want to note. And I've, I've done this in each of our, our clusters of Proverbs 12 and even the chapters before, uh, so that when we're looking at proverbs, we're not just looking at a verse and not thinking about what's come before it or what comes after it. In, instead, we're noticing That there can be groupings of proverbs or themes that can run through in some fashion these various verses. And in verses 24 to 28, I want to note verses 24 through 27 and some relationships. In verse 24, the terms. Diligent. Slothful. But in our passage tonight, those terms reappear. They're in verse 27. But this time in reverse order. Slothful. And then diligent. And so verse 24 and verse 27 have not only the same terms, but they appear in verse 27 in the reverse order. But what about the verses between those? So if I'm looking at verse 24 and 27, I have between these verse 25 and 26. In each of these verses, there is some kind of effect of words that's highlighted In verse 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And then in verse 26, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. The effect of words, nearly in the center of our passage tonight, and then surrounded in verse 24 and 27 with slothful and diligent language, the close of the chapter is verse 28. This is a reflection on the path of righteousness. And I would invite you to consider that in verse 24, the diligent, and in verse 25, the one who brings the good word. And in verse 26, the one who is a good guide, and the one in verse 27, who is the diligent, all of those are walking the path of righteousness. In other words, this path of righteousness in verse 8 is treaded on by those who conduct themselves and speak in ways that show they are wise. Verse 28 wants you to know what's in store for them. They live this way. They speak this way. They guide this way. Their feet are on this path. What's in that path that is so desirable? Well, the language is in verse 28. In the path of righteousness is life. In its pathway, there is no death. So we'll think about that uh, at the end. In verse 24, look with me at these outcomes of diligence and slothfulness. The hand of the diligent will rule. What's the hand referred to? Well, the hand is just referencing a part of the body that would be used to work. And so the hand stands for the person. It would be like telling you that a person is going in a certain direction. And instead of just putting it that way, saying that their feet were moving there. Well, if their feet are moving there, so are they. And if their hand is described in a certain way, that's to represent them as a whole. The hand of the diligent, that's just referring to the diligent. And it says they will rule. The contrast is between two kinds of people then. Diligence and slothfulness. The diligent refers to the person who works hard. They do what they're supposed to do. They do it when they're supposed to do it. And there's fruitfulness. They show a commitment. They show discipline. They show perseverance. They can focus. They want to focus and to say no to distraction. That's why they're diligent. If these things can be associated with diligence, let's think about slothfulness. The slothful person is only thinking of the short term. They're driven by their feelings. They might think to themselves, well, I don't feel like doing it. Or I don't feel like working. And so the reason they do what they do or don't do what they don't do has simply to do with the current feeling they have. They don't want to work. In fact, they may even think to themselves, I've got some excuses. And later on in the book of Proverbs, one of the exhortations is that they not be slothful using excuses like, well, there's a lion outside. When the chances are walking out their door to work that they would meet a lion are actually pretty slim, probably pretty slim for most of us. But nonetheless, they might think to themselves, okay, well, what if there's some kind of, and and yet in the end, it's just another reason not to do what they ought to do. They give all manner of excuses. They might think to themselves, well, listen, I can do that tomorrow. I'll do that eventually. They might even start. They might show some modicum of effort, and then other things just become more interesting, or they give up altogether. So the diligent and the slothful are contrasting characters in verse 24. This is not the first time they're mentioned in Proverbs. Chapter 10, verse 4 is an example. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So right there, the hand of the diligence to represent the one who sees what needs to be done, the fruit that will come from that which is desirable, namely sustenance for life, okay, that's not a small thing, S- sustenance for life so they I can keep living and keep providing for those, for not only for myself, but for others I may be caring for. And therefore, the slack hand, or in, like in chapter ten four, you pair that with this language in chapter 12, the slothful person. Well, the fruit of their lack of labor and unfaithfulness would be something not desirable. What are the contrasting outcomes? Let's look at them in chapter 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule. That's interesting language. The hand of the diligent will rule. I think this is a promise uh, in a principle operating that here's what we could come to expect and count on in life. That if we will work hard and if we will be faithful we will be able to achieve a kind of success that is beneficial to our lives and the lives of others. This language of rule might even envision someone who has achieved a position of influence or a position of authority where their hard work has led them there. And they would not be where they are apart from hard work and diligence. In fact, if they had chosen the path of slothfulness and not diligence, they would have the outcome at the end of verse 24. Put to forced labor, it's a very undesirable end. But think about this word rule for a moment. The word rule here appears early in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 4, God is telling Cain that sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's that word. You must rule over it or be a master over it. And this rule over means to subdue. Something needs to be put in its rightful place. In verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule. This doesn't have to mean some kind of dictatorial or abusive rule. There certainly are those who would rule with a kind of authoritarian hand in the world. And that's not what's in view here. This is a right ordered rule, one that brings blessing, one where things are where they ought to be. And the hand of the diligent rules like a king and queen of creation subduing and exercising dominion in in Genesis 1 26 to 28. This is a faithful image bearer in other words and they work diligently. You know what the faithful image bearer here has not avoided? They have not avoided responsibility because the diligent here has to encounter and deal with being responsible for things. It can be challenging to be responsible for ourselves from time to time, much less a manner of other relationships and opportunities over which we might have some measure of responsibility and stewardship. But it's unavoidable. If we are to be diligent, if we are to be faithful and disciplined, we won't turn from responsibility. We will end up having to encounter and embrace it in order for diligence to be what it is. Responsibility is necessary. In order for us to exercise dominion in the areas of our lives that would seek to overcome us and subdue us. In order for things to be rightly ordered in our lives, in other words, there is a kind of diligence that's required. A kind of responsibility that ought to be embraced. Our faithfulness unto God is connected with a rightful embrace of some measure of responsibility. Now, can you do everything? Well, of course not. Can you do all things for everyone? Well, of course not. But there are responsibilities that you and I have in our lives, and it's good for us from time to time to consider, in my life, what am I presently a steward of? What relationships in my life? What work opportunities? How do I think about my time? What about the church members in my, uh, in my local church? What about neighbors or friends? What kind of responsibilities and connections do I have among them? And that may change and will change from season to season. In fact, your responsibilities probably look different now than they did 10 years ago. And even thinking 10 years from now, if the Lord tarries, we may find ourselves with all kinds of different responsibilities." When I use the word relativism, I don't mean anything negative to it uh, with it here, but it is to say that there is a relativism to responsibilities, meaning from person to person and from stage to stage in life, our responsibilities might seem different. Well, that's normal. The question will be, given what I am facing, what opportunities and responsibilities I have, am I seeking to be diligent or have I embraced a slothfulness? The slothful here will be put to forced labor. That's the opposite of rule. That means they will be subdued. And this is not to mean, okay, well, you know, if I'm not the top guy in the company and and I'm, you know, working under someone else's authority, is that what that means here? I don't think this means a place in which someone is enjoying uh, working for and earning a living. Put to forced labor is a very graphic negative depiction. It's a depiction of what the Israelites experienced in the book of Exodus. It's a depiction of subjugation. It's to say, if you do not seek to rightly order your life and embrace responsibility, you may in fact find yourself in the kind of disastrous situation that's on the path of slothfulness. One writer puts it this way, to put it bluntly, the diligent will rise and this lazy will sink to the bottom. Uh, as we reflect on slothfulness or refusing responsibility, not only for oneself, but in the lives of others, you may find in the end this language about forced labor connected with slothfulness to mean something like slothfulness doesn't produce what we really want. It's actually stifling, suffocating, oppressive. I mean, look at the language there. Put to forced labor. Now that means slothfulness is only thinking of the short term. The slothful is not thinking, you know what I really hope is going to happen down the road for me? Some forced labor. Something akin to the Israelite situation. No, nobody's thinking that. But this is inviting us to consider the long-term strategy of diligence or slothfulness. Slothfulness is a long-term strategy. It's just not a good one. Okay, it is not the strategy to employ. It will not bless you. It will not bless others in your life. Laziness becomes personally stifling, relationally suffocating. Diligence is liberating. The hand of the diligent will rule. And so you might think to yourself, faithfulness, commitment, discipline sounds like a lot of work. What if discipline is a path to freedom, though, and slothfulness is the path to oppression? What if it's paradoxically the case where in this world where we toil and sweat and in the end the dust receives us like Genesis three seventeen and 19. What if instead we need to recognize in a fallen world, perhaps even counter our own instincts, that discipline is a path to freedom. To do what I need to do and when I need to do it and understand how rightly ordering my life is more freeing than the oppressing, consuming, overwhelming sense of life that can happen through slothfulness. We have to teach children this, don't we? And I'm not saying as adults we've even mastered this. It's to say that we must certainly teach children, like Solomon is teaching the young readers of this book, we must teach children the value of faithful, focused work. Diligence is crucial to vocational success. It's vital to financial stability. Part of wise parenting will mean instructing your children to do things they do not feel like doing. Because adulthood and maturity is embracing responsibility. And it looks different from stage to stage. But if we conduct ourselves and so end up modeling for our own children, that we will simply do what we want when we feel like doing it, there will be inevitable life consequences both personally and relationally. Part of wise parenting will involve instructing your children to do things when they don't feel like doing them. And this could involve conversations, especially as the children mature and are able to reason with you. You see here, my dear son, or here, my dear daughter, here's why you're going to do this anyway. And it's not because they want to. But these are real life teachable moments where diligence and discipline is connected to freedom. And slothfulness is connected to the opposite. And though the Proverbs writer is so helpful here, isn't he? He just gets right into our business and starts asking us, if you will, by implication, how we're doing here. And some of these words might sting. And that's okay. We all have room to grow. And the Lord is gracious. And the Lord is patient. And the Lord is kind. And in verse 25, we should think about the effect of good words in the midst of a heart weighed down. I love the truth of verse 25. This is a proverb that I have found in my life going back to over and over again in ministry. And I know that you have seen the importance of this in your own life. Verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Friends, all of us have hearts susceptible to being weighed down. And you may have even come into this Lord's Day this morning or this evening feeling burdened and overwhelmed and weighed down. The worries and anxieties of our lives are like that. And I think one of the reasons the worries and anxieties of life have such an effect on us in this way is because we desire security and we desire certainty. We desire those those pair of things. We desire security and we desire certainty. And when we're dealing with things that are unstable and we're dealing with a future that is unknown, we can feel very anxious and very worried. We want security and we want certainty. Now, the moment we think we have achieved certainty and security in controlling things in life, we're just, you know, in that moment uh, in a temporary delusion. Life will happen enough uh, in the hours or days that would follow to shatter that uh, delusion once more. We will realize we are never ultimately in control of the things in this world. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. And I wonder what weighs you down. I wonder when you're up in the middle of the night, what you're thinking about and what you're stressed by and what worries consume you for your own life, your own financial future. Maybe it's about friendships or children. Maybe it's about your parents or your siblings. Maybe there are things in the church and in your own uh, dwelling of the in, in the city of Louisville and elsewhere in the country. And I wonder what anxieties and worries weigh you down. Now, um, this is not going to surprise you. He says, a good word makes him glad. Now, a good word coming from whom? Well, it's not coming from the man who's got the anxious heart. It's actually a good word from somebody else. It turns out that close, encouraging relationships are crucial to your mental and spiritual health. Think about this. Anxiety weighs a man's heart down, But what lifts him up? You see, there's a play on words in the original Hebrew here. The man's heart is brought down. A good word brings it up. So it's this movement of a person's heart. They're just thinking about all of these things. And a kind word or a good word is what's meant. Some word of encouragement. Some insight into an evidence of God's grace in somebody's life. Some news of kindness or some kind of renewed perspective that gives hope and strengthens confidence. All of us need a good word. We, in other words, most people in your life are not walking around over encouraged. OK, that's not, is not the default for the people in your life. People are worried and anxious about all manner of things. So, you know what you have the capacity to do? All of us have the capacity to use words to lift up the weighed down because people are weighed down by so many things. And I think in 2020 through 2022, we've seen this most poignantly in the lives of those around us. There has been, you can just feel it in the atmosphere, in the cultural air that we breathe. There is a kind of burdensomeness and anxiety and and a disintegration that we are all living through right now. And a man's heart can be weighed down by this. Now, what can be helped here? Well, it turns out, now you might simply, you, you, you wouldn't uh, be right to say, well, you know, the only thing that God has given for this is that you go home and you pray and you read your Bible. I'm not saying the Lord doesn't encourage us through that. Of course he does. Here is, here is a word in a relationship with another person. A good word makes him glad. So I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. It shouldn't surprise us, because plenty of studies confirm this, psychologically and scientifically, that close, encouraging relationships are vital to our spiritual and emotional health. And this is really good news, because this confirms what we already experience when we gather together on the Lord's Day, and when we nurture and cultivate bonds and relationships among the people of God. It is strengthening. It is strengthening. One of the ironies is when our hearts are weighed down, we may feel very reluctant to come. We may feel like the thing I need to do is to pull away. When what the Lord in his graciousness will often do, right, is actually take us in that moment where we have come and encourage us in ways we had not expected. We should be generous with encouragement, And I I would suggest to you that when you look around us right now, I can at least see from my vantage point, our culture is very generous with criticism and very generous with judgment and very generous, willing to cancel anybody for anything that they've ever done. And I would just want us to see that in the scriptures, generosity and encouragement and thanksgiving is good. It's good because of what it does in you and what it does for the person you're speaking to. It, you don't have to choose between, well, if only the Proverbs writer would encourage us to do something that was also beneficial to the self. Oh no, when we when we think encouraging thoughts, when we spend time meditating on what we are grateful for about this person or this situation and we pass that on, that does something in us and in them. It's both and, and that is glorious. We are meant to thrive in this kind of environment, friends. When anxieties weigh you down, others can lift you up. The Lord uses that. And I think about the Apostle Paul's own example. In the second letter to the Corinthians that we have, he says in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves are comforted by God. And in that entangled language of comfort phrases, what's Paul getting at? He's saying one of the ways God comforts you is through the comfort other people provide. And when we can be a word of comfort to someone, a word of encouragement to someone, that is an amazing thing. Um, you don't know when someone will need that. In fact, you might might share an encouraging word in a week where they might not have felt weighed down. They they were probably appreciative, but there might come a day or a week when that similar thought of encouragement crosses your mind, and you think, well, you know, I've mentioned that to them before, but they might need that word of encouragement on a day where you would have thought, well, I've said it before. In fact, when we can be generous with encouragement and gratitude, what we're doing is we're cultivating relationships to help one another thrive. And you can think on encouraging statements, encouraging notes. Write someone a note. Send someone a text. Let them know of your care for them, your thought about them. That matters. Being weighed down can feel like darkness, can't it? When your heart is weighed down by the anxieties of life, it feels like darkness. Words of encouragement are beams of light. That's the way to think about it. We're letting light get into people's hearts that are weighed down when we share a good and glad word. Now, let's be honest. Do our encouraging words solve everyone's problems? No. Does an expression of care and love just eliminate immediately the struggles they're facing? Probably not. That is not what we are trying to achieve. We recognize that we're all trying to persevere, put one foot in front of the other, deal with the trials and difficulties of life, and being weighed down and welcoming in the beams of light of encouragement lifts us up. Other passages that confirm this are Proverbs 12, 18. We saw this last week. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. We can't put our finger in the air and determine all the right directions of seasons of people's life. But we should be generous with encouragement so that when the word in season falls on the ear of the hearer in the right way, the Lord uses that to lift their downcast heart. Now in verse 26... We look more about the speech of the wise. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. An immediate implication of this, friends, is in verse 26. The person who is righteous doesn't only care about himself or herself. The righteous has a view toward knowing that others are walking in life in a particular direction. And notice what the righteous cares about. Being a guide to neighbor. The one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. Someone might come to you with questions about what to do. They might pour their heart out and tell you about circumstances and decisions they're trying to think through. And the one who is righteous, they want to provide sound counsel. They care about their neighbor. They don't think to themselves, well, you know, I hope that goes well. Uh, you know, they, somebody ought to tell them. Somebody ought to ask them. The righteous person wants to be a blessing with wisdom to the neighbor. This is not something the wicked can do. They're like the picture that Jesus applied to the Pharisees. We can apply it it broadly here. The wicked are the blind leading the blind. In other words, they are not spiritually in tune with the way the world works. They don't know how to walk wisely in the light for the honor and glory of God. And so they are no sure guide to the neighbor. Why? Because they are astray themselves. The worst person to go ask for direction is the person who's lost. I mean, how are they going to help you? If you go find someone wandering around in the forest and you say, look, I'm trying to get out of here and they give you some directions. What good is it if they themselves have no idea where north, south, east and west are or any of the landmarks you're trying to describe or even the name of the place you're trying to get to? It tells us the one who's righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. I think that is referring to the wicked themselves that are led astray. Their own way is derailed from the purposes and wisdom of God. But what must that mean for the neighbor? Well, if the wicked are led astray, listening to their counsel is not going to help anybody either. Because they don't know where they're going. Except to destruction, spiritually speaking, as the writer evaluates it. The wicked are astray from righteousness. Righteousness. And if they're astray from righteousness, they're leading a life of unrighteousness, which is a path of destruction. When it tells us that they have been uh, led astray by their way, this means they're astray from what would honor God and glorify God. The righteous is a guide to the neighbor because the righteous cares about the neighbor's decisions to glorify God. That's how you're a guide. You're not a guide that if you simply know God and you tell your neighbor whatever they want to hear. No, you're a guide if you encourage people to do what honors God. If you ask them hard questions and even share with them hard truths that might not be pleasant for them to hear, but you're trying to guide them. That's not to say they'll listen. That may not happen. It may not happen a lot, in fact. But the righteous care about the direction that the lives of others are in. They don't just think about themselves. They want to walk wisely and they want to walk wisely with others. The way of the wicked leads them astray. Like the blind leading the blind. Now, um, this would also invite us to consider the role of friendships. Several commentaries in Proverbs 12 here have focused on friendships and close relationships. So that a neighbor is not just some vague person that you might come across or some relative that you might not be close to. It might, in fact, even include the notion of friendships and close bonds in life where you have an opportunity to help someone do and see what is right or be a snare and a stumbling block to them. The We will be a better friend to people when we encourage them to do what honors God. We will be a righteous guide for our neighbor. And listen, the people that we live with and live around and share life with and have close friendships with, these these are our closest neighbors. And we will be a faithful friend to them if we avoid being a stumbling block for sin and unrighteousness. The way of the wicked leads them astray. So if if we are failing in our friendship, and in fact, if we are led astray by poor friendship and others, that path of wickedness doesn't lead anywhere beneficial to you. In fact, I would suggest to you, if your closest friends in life don't love the Lord, you should pray that the Lord would connect you with hearts of the wise and the people in your local church and circles that you, uh, that you uh, need to be connected with so that you can grow with those who know God. We should have relationships with people who don't know the Lord, absolutely, so that we can speak and share and live in a way that honors Christ for them to see and hear. But if we do not closely and deeply connect with people who love God and walk wisely, we are not enjoying the kind of flourishing and thriving in life that we could. So pray and seek and may the Lord answer. In verse 27, we return to the contrast of diligence and slothfulness. Just like I said at the beginning of the message, verse 24 and 27 connect with these themes. And then in the middle, verses 25 and 26, we're about the effect of words. So we return to the second uh, example of the contrast. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Once again, this is talking about where things are leading or what's being accomplished. Focus on the latter part first. A diligent man will get precious wealth. Uh, This reminds us of verse 24. The hand of the diligent will rule. In other words, they work hard. They want to do what they should do, when they should do it, in the way it ought to be done. They want to work faithfully and with integrity. And what they will find is that the Lord blesses this discipline. He honors faithful and hard work with integrity. They don't want to cut corners. They don't want to exploit others. They don't want to live dishonestly and deceitfully. They want to be diligent before God because they know that even if they can get away with it at their job and with their co workers, their life is lived before God. and that that matters most so they want to live faithfully and work with excellence and you will get precious wealth Is a way of saying you will be compensated for your labor you will receive the fruits of your labor which are wages in the ancient world to sustain life and store up savings he says in verse 27 at the beginning though whoever is slothful will not roast his game. Now, on the face of it, that might not seem like uh, the most obvious uh, depiction of slothfulness. What's he getting at here? Well, if a slothful person is hungry and they think to themselves, well, you know, I've got the bow and arrow or I've got the rifle or the sling and the stone. I'm going to go after I'm going to go after uh, an animal. And they kill the animal. But then they don't roast it. That means they started a task which they needed to complete, but they didn't complete it. They have the game, but they didn't cook it. In other words, the outcome is they did not fully accomplish what they set out to do. Now, why? Well, it doesn't tell us here. Did something more pressing seem to be of interest? Uh, What distracted them from this? After all, if they are are killing and and putting game before them, clearly this animal is going to be needed for their own um, nu- nutrition and sustenance. But the slothful person doesn't finish the job. Their slothfulness is seen in that they start and they do not accomplish. One writer puts it this way the slothful person thinks about hunting and they think about providing food, but it never actually ends up on the table. He says the slothful person has plans and intentions, but they're short on follow through. He only roasts his game in his head. He only tastes his game in his imagination, end quote. And I I think that that way of thinking about it is to the point of this phrase. Whoever's slothful won't roast his game. The diligent man works hard and his work pays off. He enjoys the fruit of his labor. The slothful person may end up starving to death because they won't complete a task to even feed and supply what their body needs. Now, what about this path the righteous are on? Verse 28 ends our passage tonight. The one who is speaking wise words, the one who is working with excellence. What kind of path are they all on? And what can we say about this life? Why is it so desirable to work with excellence before the Lord and with diligence and faithfulness with one's hand? Why is it desirable to be uh, faithful and work with integrity instead of slothful? It talks about the path here as a path of righteousness. And the word righteousness there is the characteristic of living before God in a life of obedience. This is not meaning, first and foremost, the righteousness of Christ counted to us by grace through faith, even though we celebrate that glorious news. It is to say that the people who walk before the Lord wisely live in a kind of way called righteousness. They, in other words, it's righteousness over against wickedness. So it's a manner of one's choices and one's character, one's trajectory and pursuit. Do the righteous sin? Yes. Do the people of God stumble? Absolutely. Must the people of God repent and repair relationships and reconcile and all the rest? Absolutely. The path of righteousness is a trajectory where those things matter for the people of God. In the path is life. I want to clarify something here. To describe life as in the path, that's not a way of looking backward. That's looking forward. Let's take a negative image. If you were on your bike and I said to you, okay, you're riding on this trail in the bike. I just want to let you know what's in the path. You see, in the path is a fallen tree. So, you know, as you're riding your bike, you just need to know what's coming. In the path of righteousness is life. The writer is talking about what lies in front of the pilgrim. The writer's talking about what lies in front of the traveler on the way of righteousness. If you gave somebody directions and you said, all right, in this path is a Chick-fil-A and in this path is a Wendy's. What are you doing when you're telling people these options to eat? You're telling people what they're going to encounter. What's on the way. That's how this verse is structured. Verse 28 says, in the path of righteousness is life. I think this is the same thing Jesus is trying to capture in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the narrow way that leads to life. That's what this way is. Now, are we brought to life and rescued from the darkness of our transgressions and, and, uh, and death so that we're brought to life in Christ in the here and now? Yes, absolutely. But we, we say more than one way about the life God has called us to. We are brought to life now And our path leads to life, full and everlasting. And we have not yet experienced that how we will. And the path of righteousness is life. This is to draw the reader. I think this is meant for Solomon to say to his readers, don't you want that in your path? Don't you want that rather than dangers and snares and disaster, which is in the path of the fool? In the path of righteousness is in life. So let's say the opposite. In the path of unrighteousness is death. That's what's in store for and is on the path of the one who is leading a life of wickedness against the Lord. The writer, I think, is drawing in the reader to woo them in with this promise. Don't you want a path where life is what you encounter? When life is your future? The end of verse 28 has required a lot of thinking on commentators' parts because it seems oddly phrased. In its pathway, there is no death. Now, wait a second. Solomon, who writes Proverbs 12, and all the people before him, aren't they proof that even in the path of righteousness is death? Friends, just like in verse 28... I don't think life is mainly about physical life here, but the life we were made for and the life God is leading us into, I think death has the opposite spiritual concern as well. He's not saying believers won't die. How could he say that with a straight face? Solomon was going to die and believers would die all around him and before him. Of course, the believer will encounter physical death, but that's not the life we were ultimately made for. I think what verse 28 is saying, it's lifting us beyond just the practicalities of life about hard work and about providing food and earning wages and caring about the, the, the minutia of life. It's lifting us out and saying, let me tell you where this path is going. It's going into the life you are made for. And what you are made for is not an everlasting death. So that even though we die physically, we will be raised immortal, won't we? The perishable will put on imperishable. One of the ways verse 28 will be proven true is through the resurrection of the dead. We will see on that day, indeed, the future for the believer's path is life. Immortal life, embodied glory and life and immortality before God. That's what we have been made for. We need both realms to think about often. We need language in Proverbs that makes us think about the practicalities of relationships and faithfulness and stewardship and wages and work. We need all of that. And then we also need the perspective in the scriptures that zooms out and says, here's where all of this is heading. Don't you want to walk that path into embodied immortality where death is not your future, but life with God and everlasting life at that? Let's pray.